It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. I'm Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today we have with us Leonard M. Baines. He has served as the Dean and Professor of Law of the University of Houston Law Center since 2014. He is the ninth Dean of the Law School. And Dean Baines, can you tell us a little bit about your path to the deanship? Sure. Hi, Patty. Well, thank you for welcoming me to your, uh, your podcast. I really appreciate being here. And, you know, I have to go back in time. I'm, I'm a first-generation college student. And so being a legal academic or being a dean is something I never really thought of. And when I first became an academic, uh, one of the deans I served with said, have you really ever thought about being dean? And she said, I said, no, I've never really thought about being dean. And she said, well, you know, white guys usually think about being dean in their 30s, people of color and women think they need to do all this other stuff. And I just, I listened to her and said, that's nice, but I don't think I want to be dean because, you know, faculty members are like, is the best job that you possibly can have. <laughs> yeah. It is, it's a great job. And I, you know, keep, kept doing the job I was doing and writing and teaching and organizing conferences and whatnot. And people kept saying to me, have you ever thought about being dean? And so eventually I took the plunge and applied. And, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't know exactly what I was doing when I first applied. And eventually, you know, you get experience and you become a better interviewer, interviewee, and you know what people are looking for. And that's how I became dean. It's just, and I would say that, you know, I recognize that becoming dean, you have to sort of go with your strengths and what would be useful, what you think would be that you would like. And so being in an urban environment is something that's very, very, was very, very important to me. So, but I, I'm a New Yorker. And so I was really thinking of just the Northeast or California or the Midwest. And I really didn't think about Texas until this job. And, and lo and behold, I've been Dean for going on eight years. Well, that's lucky for all of us in Texas. Um, I, uh, I felt the same way. I was going to be in the, the Southeast probably, because that's all I had known and that's where I'd be. And then Lo and behold, here I am in Texas, and I love Texas, <laughs> so it's worked out well. Um, I would be. I remiss, love Texas too. Yes, I would be remiss if I didn't say how valuable you and our other eight dean colleagues in Texas have been to me as the most recent dean here. Uh, what a collaborative, collegial, supportive group! So thank you for the. Well, you're welcome, and, and thank you on behalf of all the other other eight deans as well. <laughs> That's right. We have a, a whole gaggle of them. We do. Um, so in looking at your background and a lot of the things that you have done, um, diversity uh, is something that comes over and over and over again. You read about how um, the FC, former FCC commissioner and minority media and telecommunications council chair, Henry Rivera, described you as a champion for diversity. Um, in 2020, you were named to the Lawyers of Color Power List by the Lawyers of Color Foundation, and you have been named one of the nation's top 100 most influential lawyers of color. And you take your commitment to, 
diversity very seriously um, as evidenced by so many activities. But the first one I'm gonna ask you about is the award-winning pre-law pipeline program that you've developed at Houston. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that program? I can, but let, let me, before I answer your question, I think a lot goes to, um, in answering the question, a sense of identity, uh, right? So um, I realize how unique and special my role, my path has been to be become a lawyer and become a law professor and, and now a dean. As I mentioned, I'm a first-generation college student. My parents were immigrants from the Caribbean. My father did not have a high school degree. My mother had a, a high school degree and you know they were very entrepreneurial and, and business people. And I, you know, my teachers in school thought I'd be really good as a lawyer and from Catholic school that I attended in high school and elementary school because I was smart and whatnot. And, but I realized on my, during my path that there were so few others like me, um, so few others that, that knew what they needed to do. I didn't know what I was doing, needed to do, as I've indicated. It's just very lucky that I had um, friends who we served as mentors of each other. And, and we had, I had professors who were mentors for me but so many others don't do not have that. And so, you know, in my path, I've often been the first. So my first teaching a, a position was Western New England. I was the first person of color ever tenured there. I'm the first black dean at University of Houston Law Center. And so even in my life, as I get older, but even within my life, there's so many firsts I have accomplished because of the circumstances of our society where there's not as many opportunities for many people of color. And so that's the reason why when I finally became a law professor, I said to myself, you know, we've got to do better as a faculty, as a group of people, we got to do better because we can't keep saying, oh, we can't find anybody. We can't keep saying, oh, their LSAT scores are too low. We can't keep saying that. When I know that people are capable and able to do whatever you want them to do, if you give them an opportunity and they know what they need to do. I, that's my history. And so that's the reason why that's the impetus for me doing this because I know there's so many really talented black and Latinx students who have what it takes to be successful. They just don't have the knowledge. And so I started this journey of uh, pipeline programs over 15 years ago at St. John's. And when I was a pro professor there, and that's, you know, when I left, we produced, I think, almost 200 students who had gone to law school. That's um, incredible. Yes, it was amazing. And I learned a lot through the process because I thought, oh, you just, when I first started, it's so many, it's very grateful, thankful that I learned because I thought, oh, just give them an LSAT class. Just give them, they, they only need an LSAT class. It's, it's all economics. And I realized, no. It's not just that. They need the support, they need mentoring, and they need the most, most important thing they need is the, the, the feeling of belonging and the feeling that people care and believe that they can be successful. That is the most important value that we can convey to these students, because they're capable. You have lots of students of color with really sky high GPAs it's usually the LSAT that is a, towards them. And, you know, so we've been doing this work as I've been doing this work 15 years. 
started to work here, oh, the seven and a half, eight, oh, almost eight years I've been here. Um, and it's not rocket science. If you put the dollars and time into students, they will succeed. Uh, they will succeed. And you just have to give them the tools to succeed. And so we do provide, so one of the things we do so look, is that we provide LSAT training for them. But it's more than just the training. We will have law school students serve as mentors and teaching fellows for them so that when they're taking the course, they have somebody helping them with their homework. And the, and the reason why we do that is because one, we, people, many times students get frustrated. Studying for the LSAT, studying for the bar exam is hard. You may not see the results right away and you really want somebody to be on them. It reminds me of like Catholic school education. The nuns and brothers would say, do this, not tell you why they're doing it. But it actually, when you re reflect back, it was important that what they were telling you to do sometimes. And okay. for this, you know, the other thing is that the fact that it's, you know, has been residential, it takes away all the obligations that mommy and daddy might place on the student. So that when they're with us, they can't, mommy and daddy can't say, can you pick up your little brother or sister? Can you go Very get groceries? Helpful. Can yeah. you do whatever else, you know, can you work this part-time job, et cetera, to help family? And so by doing all that, it really gives them, the students in our program, the opportunity to, to be like a middle-class, upper middle-class white student, to have the best uh, LSAT training they possibly can have, to have the time that they need to study for the LSAT. And it makes a huge difference. So, you know, I've been doing this work, as I mentioned, over 15 years, and consistently these students, whether it was St. John's or UH, will increase their LSAT scores by 10 to 14 points, depending on the year. Huge. Very significant. Wow. It's huge, right? It's huge. Yeah. And not, you know, and somebody, one, one, one person said to me, well, you must be cream skimming students. No, we sometimes do have students with 130s, the starting initial score, 140s. I mean, so no, we're not cream skimming the students, but it's giving them the opportunity to flourish and do well. And sometimes, you know, that's average. So that's average. So some people, some students increase the score by 25 points, you know, which is again amazing. Incredible, yeah. Um, but it's but but it's because I believe, and I think we all believe we participate in the program that they can be successful. I think many times, a lot of people do not believe. Right? They may not say they don't believe, but they do not believe. Right? And so the problem is what I tell people, members of the majority, especially. Do you really believe that Black and Latinx students can do really well? Do you really believe it? If you don't believe it, then you don't even need to be involved in this, to be honest with you. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty stark, but you don't until you believe it, because they can tell. The students can tell whether you believe they can be successful or not. They can tell. They can smell it, right? And so if you're not able to say that with conviction and real belief, then that's, that's the reason why we have the problem, right? Because you're not believing that that would be possible. So those are the things we do. I mean, they also have internships. We help them with their personal statements, the diversity statements. So that by the time they're ready to apply to law schools, they're ready. They're as ready as anybody else could be. Um, and that really has been helpful for them. So many of them, we have over 80 something at UH that now have been in law school, that have been admitted to law school. And, and that's a, you know, you say, oh, it's only 80 and, you know, but 
we only had 300 people participate in the program, 300 or so. Most of them are in, still in college. So of the people who graduated from college, about half of them had been admitted to law school. So it's pretty good. And, and some of them don't go to law school right away. I mean, I, there was this woman uh, that I worked with at St. John's. She was St. John's undergraduate. She had financial issues. She had to support her family. So when she graduated, she went and worked. And I was pleased to see on social media that she ended up going to law school like five years. I guess when, how long the LSAT lasts for like four or five years. Four or five years later, she went to a part-time program at Fordham. I think was on Law Review, one of the journals, because she was a very smart student. So you don't know whether the student can go right away. And sometimes it's not the right thing for everyone. But um, so I'm very proud of the program. I, I wish they would all come to us. <laughs> some of them have gone to St. Mary. Yes, we're going to take some. Some have gone to UT. Mm -hmm. um, some have left the region, gone to University of Chicago and, and all California, Berkeley. They've gone everywhere. I wish they'd all stay here. And the ones that we've only had of the 83, only eight have come to UH. Uh, I wish more would come. And of mm -hmm. the eight, you know, one was on Law Review. They've been on Dean's List. They've won writing competitions from the state bar. Um, they've done that. Many of them now work for firms after they graduated. They've done exceptionally well. That's an extraordinary program. And I know um, one of my associate deans actually is, is working with your leadership of the program mm -hmm. to develop something a little more modest here, but with the same idea that, mm -hmm. you know, unless we give the, uh, the people who are underrepresented some of the similar supports that the competition is going to have. We're never going to change the dynamic. Oh, yeah. We yeah. won't become more diverse. How can we if we just keep mm -hmm. doing the same thing? So I applaud you and your efforts. Oh, thank you. Great results. How long is the program? Uh, well, we have several different models, right? So it has grown. <clears throat> but generally, it's about um, there's a one that's about four to five weeks, that's the L, the Law School Admissions Council one, um, that's basically just, you know, so part of it also is not just LSAT, but also they take law school classes. And for those who are in their sophomore or freshman year. And then there's also one that's eight weeks that we put on, which is classes, but also internships. Um, so, there's, so there's many different components of it. Then there's, for those who are juniors or going into the junior year, is the LSAT component. Um, there's also a component where for some of the students, they will work for a firm between their college graduate year, the, between the time they graduate from college that summer and the time they start law school. So several firms have done, helped us with that. Uh, we've just started a working professionals program. So a lot of it's asynchronous. Uh, it starts it's on weekends, it starts in April, I think goes through the summer. Uh, but it's for the, you know, in Houston, there's a lot, it's a very diverse city, there's diverse city, there's lots of people who were not able to go to law school right away, who because of family commitments or economic issues, ended up becoming teachers or firefighters or police officers or nurses, et cetera. So it's geared at those individuals. So we're really trying to provide the, you know, complete picture for all those types of individuals who have been underrepresented, underserved. What a very comprehensive program. It's really outstanding. And I assume any students, uh, future students are, who are listening can get information on your website, correct? Definitely, definitely, definitely. And that's the reason why we started Aspiring Lawyer Magazine, because the program is pretty expensive to put on. It's limited. We have limited capacity. My faculty would say, you know, up to half of them actually teach in the program, because uh, I tell them they can teach at least one course or one hour or 
as many hours as they want. But you know, we often have way more applicants than we can serve. And so we decided to launch this online magazine to provide students from underrepresented backgrounds with core information that may be useful for them. And it's called Aspiring Lawyer. I saw it and was quite enthusiastic this fall. I'm really um, well, thank you. so impressed that you all started that. And that will be a great uh, of great help to those who are aspiring to be lawyers. Exactly. <laughs> well, you don't just work on the front end of trying to diversify the profession. You, I know, are um, very involved in leading on the postgraduate um, side of things with the Black Lawyers Matter Conference that um, you initiated last year with SMU and that this year uh, there was the second annual and LSAC also sponsored it. Can you tell us a little bit about that conference and um, why you started it and what um, what you're seeing as the result of it? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, it really all became came out of uh, as a result of the George Floyd situation. You know, George Floyd is a Houston native. Uh, he's actually buried in Houston. And it's like, we were trying to figure out things to do. And, we, and one of the things, again, we recognize is that there's just so few Black lawyers, you know, even though it, you know, African-Americans since the sweat case in 1950 are eligible to go to law school or to go to law school or legally able to go to law school, the percentages have stayed pretty consistent at like 5% or less. And if you actually look at the men versus the women, it's like significant underrepresentation of black men. And so we, you know, Jennifer Collins is the Dean of SMU and I decided, we actually did, it started with some op-eds that we wrote together and other collaborations we did. And we said, we need to do something. And so we decided to collaborate on this conference and we involved the other eight uh, law school deans in Texas, as well as- very flattered to be involved in it. It was important and I was glad yeah. to be part of it. And we had, you know, workshops really on, uh, with leading voices on a variety of different topics that we felt people could learn from. And so, you know, it was on pipeline programs. It was on um, the historically black law schools that people may not be aware of. It was on um, law firm hiring. It was about legal academia and judicial, judicial clerkships. It was a variety of different panels on a lot of different topics that was designed really just to give people information. And we had, I think over 2000 registrants and maybe a thousand showed up or something like that. So it was a fairly successful conference in terms of the people who were, who part, who consumed it. And a lot of people were very, very interested in it. And as a result of it, I think, you know, especially because one of the things that Dean Collins and I, is we asked the firms in Texas to you know, they didn't have to, it was, it was a, um, there was no comp, no compensation, no honorarium. It would be asked them if they wanted to sponsor it. So that actually increased their participation. And I think that a lot of them are, are now, you know, because they've, they've been confronted by the George Floyd matter also, because a lot of the Texas law firms are working hard to improve their numbers. But, you know, when you look at their numbers of lawyers of color, and compare it to other large cities, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, frankly, uh, in Houston and, and Dallas and Austin and San Antonio for you know just not just black lawyers, but Hispanic lawyers, even Asian lawyers, American lawyers. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. So I think they're much more open to it. And um, so I think that's the positive thing that happened 
with that one. And then, you know, and then Law School Admissions Council, Kelly Testy, you know, volunteered to help with it. And that took a lot of pressure off both my school and SMU to sure. do logistical <laughs> things and whatever, which was great. And she brought together a team of other uh, deans to help sponsor it. And again, we had, you know, one of the comments, uh, feedback I got from the from the conference from 2020 is that we didn't have enough about legal academia. So we ended up having a panel specifically on how to become a law professor, some of the issues that people confront, and looking at sort of what some deans did, some programs do to be really successful in increasing the diversity. We had, which we didn't have last year, a panel on pedagogy about how to integrate and or incorporate anti-racism and diversity into curriculum. And then we had a lot of, you know, uh, several di really dynamic panels on leaders of, in terms of how to get more diversity in law firms, you know, who provided real leadership and uh, innovative uh, ways to, to do that. So I was very excited about both of them conferences. And it's, I think it's going to be, I hope it's going to be an annual event where we really take stock every year of where we are and see if we can move the needle in some way. Well, I look forward to the next one. Um, recently had um, Professor Terry McMurtry Chubb on, and oh, yeah. she was, I know she was part of your panel uh, about curriculum and, and including uh, diversity and anti-racism in the law school curriculum. So a lot is going to change um, over the course of the next years, I know, and uh, a lot needs to change. So yeah. thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so if this were a video podcast, as well as an audio podcast, then our listeners and watchers would see this magnificent rendering of your new building behind you, but they won't get the benefit of that. So you're going to have to tell us a little bit about the John M. O'Quinn Law Building that you are eagerly awaiting the opening of this spring. Well, they can visit our website to see the <laughs> renderings and see where, where we are. So yes, the John M. O'Quinn Law Building, John M. O'Quinn was a phenomenal lawyer, trial lawyer, who won a lot of great cases. He one of one of UH Law's uh, most prominent alums. And his, his name will go on the building. And we're very thankful to the foundation, the John M. O'Quinn Law Foundation, that provide a naming gift for the building. So the building has been something that's been a decade-long dream by many alums, faculty, and deans in the past. And part of the problem, part of the challenge is because the current building we're in, students call it a bunker. Uh, part of it is because- <laughs> And not with affection, probably. <laughs> not with affection. Part of the problem, part of the challenge is that it is um, half of the building is below ground. It's on, it sits on top of an underground spring huh. in Houston. <laughs> And it has suffered from flooding. Uh, in fact, it was almost demolished by Tropical Storm, Storm Allison in 2001, where the water, I understand, came up all the way to the, the ceiling of the lower level. Oh my and, goodness. And it was basically unusable for a semester, the whole building. And so a lot of decisions were made then that really helped. They waterproofed it, put in pumps, they did, a bunch of things that really uh, made flooding less severe. <laughs> but as I mentioned, it's above an underground spring. So you that's can't, not going away, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't totally eliminate flooding. 
And it's also what's called new brutalism style. So it is this heavy concrete, very light in color, which gets very stained and dark. And you really can't do very much with it. It's, the, the design is not, you would have to really break down a whole bunch of walls to make it more conducive. There's not a way, there's no, there's no lobby, there's no place for people to really congregate. It's just not a great building. And so for many, many years, people wanted to do this. And it was really the aim of our alums, especially to move forward with this and with our present, I think, because she made the big difference in that she made the building the number one priority for facilities at the state legislature, since we're a public institution. And but of course, like a lot of great leaders, she wanted to make sure that the law school and the law alumni had skin in the game. Sure. And so <laughs> we were tasked with raising at least $10 million within a year for the building. And as to, and it would, and it would made sense because when we went to the state legislature, we could say that our alums came up with $10 million, right? So it was very, very important. And they came forward. They didn't think they could. Um, they, some of them said, we'll never raise a million dollars because we've never raised that much money in that period of time, in, in any period of time, really, in one year, especially a little over a year, we never raised that much money. And so we raised that. And then, you know, we had the naming gift. We had support from the university president. And then we had support from the legislature, all totaling $93 million. Um, wow, that's going to be some exceptional building. <laughs> well, it's state of the art. It's designed by a women-owned women architectural firm, Shepley Bullfinch. Um, so I, we take diversity seriously through whatever we do. <laughs> and it has a very unique design. It's very modern. As we think it's reflective of the Houston skyline. Uh, and it has everything we don't have, like a lobby. It has, uh, it has an event space on the first floor. It, it has places for people to congregate. It will have state-of-the-art um, technology. It has a meditation room. Um, for students or faculty and staff, if they want to meditate, it'll have an outdoor terrace that will you could will be able to see the Houston skyline from the terrace. So it's really going to be beautiful. quite a beautiful building that we hope will attract students and faculty. And and part of it, we want you know I think buildings are important because what I always say to uh, when we were doing this campaign is that. You know, your mother told me, I've told you, don't judge a book by its cover, but unfortunately everybody judges a book by its cover, right? And so our cover looks, you know, was looking disastrous. So we <laughs> want a cover that looks really magnificent. And my tagline always has been is that to the, all the folks I've spoken to, is that we're a world-class institution in a world-class city. We require a world-class building and we will now have a world-class building. And the other thing about how diversity fits into this is that we made the $10 million by reaching out to groups that hadn't been reached out to before. And so of that first $10 million, a lot of it came from outside of Houston. So this, this is the secret of the success. We went to San Antonio, some of our successful alums there, Dallas, Austin, New York, California, Denver, where a lot of our alums were. And so I think only 54% of that initial $10 million came from Houston. In addition, we reached out to different groups. And so the building, you know, so we reached out to, we brought together African-American alums, Latinx alums, Asian alums, women alums. And so we raised almost a million dollars from those alums 
Uh, so, and many of them were not giving very much. And the last thing about that is that the building also will be reflective of our community. And so we have, you know, the reading room of the library is named after Michael Olivas, who was one of our prominent now retired faculty members. Um, the first um, at Latinx graduate, who graduated in 1960. He, his family have uh, provided funding for a, a room named after Tony Bonilla. Um, we have uh, anonymous donor who gave funding for our first black alum um, that is gonna be the Locker, Locker Alcoves will be named after him. Uh, our Balsa alums are naming the judicial robing room, the new courtroom. Um, and Senator Royce West, who's one of our alums, he's a senator, state senator from Dallas, has is naming an African-American heritage classroom. Um, so the building itself will be reflective of our community so that our students of all backgrounds will see how successful our alums of all different, and there will be also be a women's class, women's class, a woman who has, is, is, is naming, has named a classroom. So our alums, our students will see that no matter what their background is, that they can come to this law center, this law school, and see that they were alums of their backgrounds who were very successful, who helped build this building. And I think that that will send a message to all our students of the possibility that they can be those people, they can be like those alums in the future if they come here. That'll be very empowering to them. And, um, and also just give them a great deal of support as they see people named like them and who were mm -hmm. like them around the building. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Good mm -hmm. for you. And when should it be open? Um, they are uh, at 70% done. Uh, they're ahead of schedule. Um, it's uh, may very well be complete by May of 2022. And classes in the fall of 2022 will be in the new building. Fantastic. Well, good. That's great. Well, now we've talked about the University of Houston's future. Um, I want to end our podcast with the same question I ask all of our guests, and that is, what do you see as the future of legal education over the coming decade? And when you're thinking about that, I ask people to think about what it is likely to be a decade from now, and if the answer is different, what it should be. Mm. That's a really intriguing question. One, I, I, I have to note that I've been dean for going on eight years, and I am also, I believe, the first black male dean in the Southeast or Southwest, or the, I'm maybe the only, I'm sorry, I should say I'm the only black male dean in the Southeast or Southwest at a predominantly white institution, law school. And, Very interesting. Yeah, and um, and I would and I raise that because I do think so. I've been dean for going on eight years, and there's now been a incredible increase in number of African American women deans, right? And African American deans generally, but women specifically that probably outnumber the black men male deans by two to one. And as a result of that there's really been the Dean's listserv and conferences have been remarkably different <laughs> in terms of conversations and tone. 
And so to answer your question, I think the diversity really will become more embedded than it probably has been. Because I do think people, some people were just giving lip service, lip, lip service, lip service, yes. <laughs> I think some people were just giving, said that doesn't sound right, lip service. <laughs> <laughs> Like maybe I focus on what it, what how it sounds as opposed to what it means, right? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think some people were just really giving lip service to it, saying, "Oh, that's diversity," and then they go about doing whatever they want to do and and whatever they want, what their focus would be. And I think as the deans become more diverse, and as the student bodies become more diverse, because you know one of the things that we're going to be facing is this demographic cliff that colleges and universities are facing in that the number of college age students is going to decline because yes. of demographic, not demographic, but uh, uh, fertility rates or um, uh, childbearing um, rates, the, that is going to decline precipitously in the next five years or less. Precipitously, they're predicting. And you see a lot of colleges and universities in the Northeast and Midwest, they're having issues with this. That right. they are losing students. They know what to do. Now, I know what they need to do. <laughs> they need to go into these untapped markets and the Black and Latinx students is what they need to do. But that's right. We're getting plenty of students. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. They need they need to do that, but they're not right because they're focused on the old model. And I think that to answer your question. I think those schools that get ahead of the curve on these issues of diversity, where they're showing this next generation that are going to be here now, they're first of all that they're showing them this is a place for them because it's re representative, it's reflective. We're, we honor their them, their values and their backgrounds. We honor that. Is they're going to be much more successful. And two, those schools that are developing that pool of talent. That may not be under that may at the moment be undeveloped. Those are the schools that are going to be very successful. And I think that it, it the mindset for some of our colleagues, I'm sad to say, is some of them is not there yet. And I think that, but eventually it's going to get there because they're going to have real, real problems if things continue as they are now. So I think that what I see is that the law schools are going to be much more diverse, they're going to be much more commitment diversity much more commitment to anti-racism, anti-discrimination, et cetera. I think that there's gonna be a lot more than that. I see it already happening. Um, the other thing I think is that, you know, we really have to think through what that, that, then that means. What does that mean with respect to LSATs and bar exams? Is that gonna be, are we gonna do, you know, and we, we, you know, we, we know the Supreme Court is um, much more conservative than it was before. It appears as though they're ready to throw out precedent that existed for 50 years? And will they throw out affirmative action is the question. Because there's, you know, there's, I, I tend to believe they will not, but it, you know, with three new justices in four years or five years who are kind of conservative, it's hard to know what they will do. And so the question then becomes like, what are, is the standards for admission? How does that change? What are the, stand, what are the standards for being a member of the bar, how will that change to reflect the fact that you, 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 you know, we economically, you need to have students. And if the students you need to get are students who 
are more diverse and you know, not every school is gonna be able to develop the students, right? They may not have the resources to do that. Well, what do you do in that circumstance? So I think there's a lot of questions and issues that we're gonna to have to confront on that, that issue. And I think that the, the you know, the, there has to be, you know, in that effort, in that area, there also has to be an appreciation of what the curriculum needs to be like. Because, you know, many times there was a recent article, maybe, maybe not recent, maybe a year ago, an ABA voices section or perspective section, I think it was, about how law school can be almost intellectually violent, is what this person said to students of color. Because you read all these cases, and then there's nothing, there's no social justice aspect to it. You know, there's, there's no, there's, there's nothing you can do. You read the case and people can stop and frisk you. You read the case, oh, you can have affirmative action, but it's a, this narrow thing where you can't do quotas, you can't do anything, but you can take into account, which means many people not taking into account. So almost everything where it might be an opportunity for more rigorous, more assertive, uh, uh, for um, social justice issues, we're hampered by, right? So even with the school funding, it's, oh, you, that's not an equal protection issue on the federal level. I mean, so all those things that, so students, they come to, to law school, some students of color come to law school because they, they want more equality. And the law tells them, no, it, or it's very narrow. If you get it, it's like this very, very, very narrow eye of the needle that you have to go through. And I do think that what I, what I predict is that law schools are probably gonna have to be a lot more open to not just discussing the doctrine as it is, but also to discussing the doctrine as you would like it to be. And think about ways that lawyers, especially lawyers of color, can be more social engineers to change the future because I fear that the future is gonna be like the past. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but as I see the cases before the court, whether it's voting rights or the, from the abortion case or the affirmative action cases or you know, all these cases and you say to yourself, what, are the, what is the court thinking with Voting Rights Act where it basically has impaled it? You know, it is like you know, the things that you would be able to do that you would be, you know, that you, you, wouldn't, be able, you wouldn't be able to do five, seven years ago before the Shelby County case. You wouldn't be able to do after this Bromwich case, whatever it is. You wouldn't be able to do those things that you're doing now. Um, and so I do think that that's probably gonna result in the students really asking for this. I think what we've seen with George Floyd, we've seen with the coronavirus and COVID is that the students are asking us to do more for them. That it's not just giving them the basics. They want a roadmap that they can follow to be successful, however they need to be successful. And they want us to do more and we have the power to do more. I mean, the, the bar associations, the lawyers, the judges, they listen to us and we have the power to do more and we need to do more for these students because it's the future that we have to worry about. Well, I, I think you're right about not only are they asking for this, but they're going to expect it at mm -hmm. some point. And um, I think schools will have to, to evolve to meet some of these needs and expectations. But you are certainly leading the way at the University of Houston um, by incorporating some of these topics into the Black Lawyers Matter Conference and also 
um, you know, there's no lip service happening at the University of Houston. You're all action, and, uh, and we're all the better for it. So thank you very well, thank much you so for what much. you're doing. All right. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast and network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.